ECB. There were some rumblings about the Bank of Japan also a week and a half ago, and the governor you know, put a stop to that essentially in his comments. So the ECB and the Bank of Japan, we don't see them moving at all this year, probably not even next year. So I don't think this really changes the calculus very much for them. Emerging market central banks, maybe because, uh, you know, they've already started to, to act mm. and they have to think about the exchange rates. Are they in a better position to withstand this, given that they have, as you say, started to act already? Some of the major emerging market central banks in Russia and Brazil, uh, for example, have raised rates already several times this uh, last year. Yeah, they've been very quick off the mark. Um, better positioned, I suppose, you know, they have other things they need to be concerned about. I mentioned the exchange rate, and that's probably the biggest thing um, that's, that's on their minds. Um, so they have this additional constraint, if you will. Uh, so I, I'm not sure better positioned is the right way to think about it. They're just under a little bit more stress. James, thanks very much for coming in. That's James McCormack, Global Head of Sovereign Ratings at Fitch Ratings. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In Asian stock markets, they now seem to be slipping back into negative territory. The ASX 200 is now down about a quarter of a percent. Uh, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.2%. The Cosby in South Korea, down about 0.7%. It looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose about 70 or 80 points or so at the open. A lot of movement in the commodity markets as well. Uh, Brent crude oil come off of its highs that it reached in the US session. It reached a seven-year high above $90 at one stage. It's at $88.55 a barrel at the moment. Gold is trading at $1,820 an ounce. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock with more Money Talk. Back chats coming up next after the news with Jim Gould and Paul Zimmerman. The weather forecast for today... Mainly cloudy, sunny intervals, maximum temperature of around 22 degrees, and it's going to be mainly cloudy tomorrow. Temperatures will fall appreciably on Saturday night. It's 19 degrees right now, 86% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Andrew Shrofsky with the half-hour news. An environmentalist says Hong Kong cannot continue to rely on its three landfill sites to handle waste. William Yu, the CEO of World Green Organization, was commenting after the government said it would study building a waste incinerator in Changchui in Tunmun. Mr. Yu said it would be the second such incinerator after the one in the Soko Islands, which will come online in 2025 using older but proven moving great technology. He said a consultation should be held once the government finishes its environmental impact assessment. Unfortunately, our waste amount per capita compared to other cities is quite high. And when you look at the experience when the waste charging scheme has been launched in other cities, a significant reduction in the waste amount, that would be good. But I think at the same time, it takes time to build the recycling habit. So we still need some modern scientific facilities to treat our ways. The government says it found no new COVID-19 cases from an overnight lockdown and testing operation at a block in Tungchung. Block 7 of Coastal Skyline Phase 3 was cordoned off last night after authorities detected cases there. Some 730 residents were tested. The World Trade Organization has authorized China to impose retaliatory duties on U.S. imports to a value of more than 600 million U.S. dollars annually. Beijing had challenged American tariffs levied on Chinese goods ranging from solar panels to steel wire. Here's Aaron Tam. 
The ruling allows China to take action to balance out what the WTO ruled were unfair U.S. fees on some Chinese goods, including thermal paper, solar panels, wind towers, steel sinks, and several types of pipes. Beijing is now authorized to impose duties on $645 million U.S. worth of U.S. imports per year. The dispute stretches all the way back to 2012, when the WTO set up a panel of experts to try to settle a complaint filed by China over what it said were unfair duties imposed by the United States. The U.S. Federal Reserve has signaled that it plans to begin raising its benchmark interest rate as soon as March. The move would be a key step in reversing its pandemic-era low-rate policies that have fueled hiring growth, but also escalated inflation. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell made the announcement at a press conference. At the Federal Reserve, we are strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us: maximum employment and price stability. In support of these goals, the Federal Open Market Committee kept its policy interest rate near zero, and stated its expectation that an increase in this rate would soon be appropriate. Against a backdrop of elevated inflation and a strong labor market, our policy has been adapting to the evolving economic environment, and it will continue to do so. Thank you for listening to the news from RTHK. Good morning, and welcome to Back Chatter. I'm Jim Gould, and your co-host today is Paul Zimmerman. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Jim. Today we're looking at、uh, ongoing efforts to control the spread of the Omicron、uh, COVID-19 variant.、Uh, the World Health Organization's European Director Hans Kluger has said that、uh, Omicron has moved the pandemic into a new phase and could bring it to an end in Europe. But there are also warnings that new and potentially dangerous variants、uh, could still emerge. Here in Hong Kong, lockdowns、uh, continue at Kwai Chung Estate, with the Centre for Health Protection reporting 58 new cases there yesterday, taking the total of confirmed or suspected infections in the cluster to 334. Meanwhile, many residents of the territory are experiencing what's being described as pandemic fatigue. A survey by the Democratic Party found that 65% of respondents said it's time for the government to study. Or prepare for ways of living with the virus. After 9:15, we'll look into a proposal for an incinerator to be built、uh, near Tunmun, in addition to the facility currently under construction south of Lantau Island. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or just、uh, give us a call on two double three double eight two double six. Uh, joining us now on the line, we have、uh, Benjamin Cowling,、uh, head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics from the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and also Dale Fisher, who's a senior consultant in、uh, infectious diseases at the National University Hospital in Singapore and、uh, a chair of the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network of the World Health Organization.、Um, thanks for joining us.、Uh, good morning to you both.、Uh, perhaps、uh, Dale Fisher, if we could start with you.、Um, hello. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Hello, Dale good Fisher. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for joining.、Uh, so, just looking at the global picture. Um, the development of the Omicron variant and the spread of it in various different countries.、Uh, how is the outbreak developing? Oh, I 
think you, you you've said it yourself. It's 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 progressing and and evolving in in different ways in different parts of the world, really based on the 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 restrictions, the social restrictions, the the uh, the, the border uh, limitations. So um, you could argue um, Europe is progressing towards endemicity a lot uh, a lot faster. Um, uh, obviously, China and Hong Kong are still. Uh, got the brakes on very hard. Um, Singapore is somewhere in between there, but even in Australia, you're seeing um, Western Australia still trying to have a, a, a virtual zero COVID policy, and the rest of Australia is is having you know states with thirty thousand cases a day. So, so it's uh, it, it depends on how how quickly you want to come out of the pandemic, I guess, and what uh, what. Uh, problems along the way you're you're prepared to tolerate. As we know, Omicron is uh, a lot more transmissible than uh, other variants, um, but it appears to cause milder symptoms. And then then, uh, I was looking at South Africa, for instance, uh, and the peak there was very, very steep, but now it seems to be falling off very quickly. So what does that tell us about the, the nature of the pandemic couple of uh, reasons that, that could explain that uh, at, at face value you'd think okay well it's it's really whipped through the population uh, very quickly and and therefore there's less cases but but probably what's equally likely is because it's so mild um, uh, people aren't going for testing as, as often and, and why should they because they're only going to get get quarantined for something where it's either mild or asymptomatic um, that's the situation in Singapore, that 99.7% of cases now are all either mild or asymptomatic. So I'm sure our numbers are, are likewise a, a major underestimate. And, and in fact, PCR, uh, sorry, uh, rapid test diagnoses are much more common than PCR uh, diagnoses. And I'm sure there's a lot of uh, runny nose and things where people just aren't going for tests. So the w- widespread uh, transmissibility of uh, Omicron, I, mean, I, I read a prediction that up to 60% of uh, all people in Europe will have had it before long. Um, what does that mean for, um, uh, for people's natural defences and um, w- what does it mean for other variants uh, of, the, uh, of the coronavirus? Well, in terms of, Obviously, there's two ways you can become immune, either through the vaccine or through through natural exposure. Uh, and and clearly, if if a lot of people are, are getting natural exposure, then you're going to get to the end point uh, faster. Now, now the problem with getting to the end point faster is uh, is that too many people are getting sick at the same time. So so this can threaten hospital services, other essential services, and and. And indeed, even pipelines, especially if you're you're still quarantining and isolating um, positive cases and contacts, so it, it can really uh, cripple your workforce if you let it let it go. So that's the policy in Singapore: is we still want to keep it sort of a, a fairly uh, flat curve. Uh, what does it mean for for other variants? Um, yeah, we we know lots of transmissibility. Uh, we'll see more mutations and and likely the emergence of of new variants, but but that need not necessarily concern us. What what really concerns us is if the the variants result in in, in escape from our, from our immunity, whether that be natural or vaccine associated. Mm. So does that mean that it's uh, better to embrace Omicron um, 
to make sure that we build up the immunity so that there is less of a chance for future nasty ones that we don't know yet, um, the unknowns, um, are, are coming through and breaking through? I mean, it's a brave government that's going to say, let's have Omicron parties and, and get over it, um, because we still don't, don't really quite, quite know enough. So, so I, I wouldn't say that, but, but it's really a case of, of sort of ongoing surveillance, particularly the genetic surveillance and, and what that means in terms of, of, of physical outcomes. That's, that's really what, what we need to do. So I, I wouldn't be encouraging people to go and get, uh, to get infected. I still think it's better to not be infected, but, but the end point is, just like a cold um, or a flu, um, the, the same fuss of, of the last couple of years uh, won't, be, won't be there in the future, I'm, I'm quite sure, um, unless there is some, some, some amazing turn where, the, where a new variant does behave quite differently. So is WHO promoting to those governments that still have a zero COVID policy to turn the ship around and, and, and advising them to, to speed up the process? Or uh, what, what, is the, what, what is the WHO's stance on it? No, I don't believe it would be WHO's uh, role um, to, to advise governments how to do it. The, the, the WHO is a, is a tool of the member states, actually. So if, if advice was sought, uh, I'm sure they'd give it, but uh, they're not, uh, they don't walk around telling countries um, how to manage their, their populations. That's just, just not in their, uh, their, their mantra. Um, but then who does? And I, I mean, think if... China is... Well, it's up to the governments to, to obtain their own in, information, um, uh, discuss with, with other uh, governments, uh, discuss with their experts, weigh up all the various health, economic and social costs of, of whatever intervention is in place and then make a decision. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean people like uh, Ben and I are going to agree or disagree with it necessarily. It's just, uh, it's just the way it is. But, okay. but this running out of sync between different countries is this is causing dislocations in the economy that's causing some serious damage. I mean, for this reason, we have a UN. For this reason, we have a World Health Organization to try to get people aligned so we can all move forward. I mean, if, if one moves forward, the other one doesn't, then we have all these dislocations, and they're very expensive, and they, they drive inflation. I mean, is, is, there really, is there an overall attitude in, on, the, on the health uh, from the health specialists like yourself to trying to get a uniformity in in be in moving out of the, this this pandemic. No, I think it's the WHO's role to present the science uh, and speak in terms of science. But but the science has to be applied contextually, whether you're in China or Africa or or South America or Australia or Singapore or Hong Kong. It's uh, it's really up to governments to decide the. The timing for movement. I, I do believe um, China and Hong Kong uh, leadership would be aware that endemicity is, is 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 inevitable. So it's it's really about um, uh, when you do it and 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 how you do it, what sort of steps you take to, to move that way. But I, I don't believe it's realistic to stay zero for indefinitely. Okay, you mentioned um, uh, Ben Cowling uh, just now. We also have uh, Benjamin Cowling, uh, epidemiologist, uh, on the line. Uh, good morning to you. 
So as we were saying, uh, different parts of the world uh, adopt their own approaches to uh, dealing with the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, there's a lot of attention on the United Kingdom, the UK's approach. Um, the number of cases there are falling now um, after another peak and virtually all, all uh, uh, antivirus measures have been um, uh, done away with uh, in England, certainly. Anyway, um, what, what can we learn from the UK's approach? Although the government measures have been lifted, uh, the behaviours are still in place in many cases. There's still people wearing masks indoors in, in some locations. And there's still a policy for isolation of people that test positive for COVID. So it's not totally back to the pre-COVID uh, situation. But now I, I think the UK is reaching the end of the pandemic. Case numbers are going to continue to drop. I don't think they're going to research uh, for a while. And as the numbers come down, the pressure on hospitals comes down, the pressure on other essential services and pipelines also comes down. And so it, it, it's really looking good, actually, for a way out of the pandemic, not only in the UK, but in other parts of Europe as well. I think Denmark are, are just deciding to, to relax all of their measures as well in a similar position. So, OK, so if you've had Omicron, and a lot of people will have had uh, been infected with Omicron, so that's going to give you uh, <clears throat> a reasonable uh, defence against uh, other uh, types of the virus, such as uh, Delta? Well, what, what we've seen in the last two years is that an infection with one particular strain does give immunity for a period of time, but it's not necessarily long-term immunity is for a period of time, at least six months, maybe 12 months or longer in some cases, even against other variants. So if you have Omicron now, you should have immunity against Delta, other variants, including things that might come up in the future. It won't necessarily be long-lasting, but what you will find is that if you get infected again, it will tend to be even milder. Every sequential infection will get milder and milder and milder. Is this the way that viruses uh, develop uh, generally, do you think? Well, I think we have to be careful to distinguish changes in the virus from changes in the, the population mm. immunity. And actually for Omicron, although you said it tends to be milder, there's still debate about exactly how much milder it might be than previous strains. What's clear is in South Africa, Omicron had less of an impact because there was an awful lot of population immunity from previous infections. In Europe, Omicron is having less impact than previous strains because there's an awful lot of immunity from vaccinations and booster doses and to some extent from previous infections. In older people in Hong Kong, we didn't have either of those. Only about 20% of older people, people over the age of 80 in Hong Kong, have had two doses of vaccine so far. Um, and so we really don't have such a level of immunity as in in maybe in older people in South Africa, in Europe, even in Singapore, where Dale is. And I worry that Omicron is not going to be as mild in Hong Kong as it's, as it's been elsewhere because of that lack of immunity. So as time goes on, even if the virus doesn't change, it will have less and less impact because of the immunity that's built up in populations through infections and vaccinations. It, maybe the virus will, will change to be milder as well, but that need not happen. 
So, so we can. Uh, uh, Dr. Owens, Trot and Partners OTP sends out a, a an email and a newsletter that uh, tends to be quite po uh, well received by uh, by uh, the English speaking community, especially. Um, and are they really pleading for a moving away from zero to a living with a virus, and they sending out a number of. Um, of, of conditions to move forward to the government to adhere to. One is mandatory vaccination uh, and then reducing the quarantine time, uh, allowing an isolation at home and um, and handing out free rapid tests. I mean, can, what is your position on uh, if we would advise government right now to move to endemicity and, and, and moving away to from zero to living with COVID? Right now, today, I can see the advantages of zero COVID strategy, I can see the potential benefits to Hong Kong of having an open border with the mainland, but I'm not sure we can get back to zero very soon. It's going to be tough. I don't think we're, we're heading down at the moment in terms of the epidemic. I think, if anything, it's going up. Um, and looking at the challenges that other parts of the world have faced with Omicron, I think it's going to be very difficult for us to get back to zero. It's, it's, a, it's a nice idea, but I don't think it, it, it's, it's going to be very easy. And that means we have to face the, the likelihood that there's going to be lots and lots of infections in the coming weeks, even in the coming months, and we have to prepare accordingly. And for me, the absolute priority is raising the vaccination coverage in older adults. Anyone above the age of 70, the coverage is currently not not really good enough and i think that the hospitals in hong kong the isolation facilities the intensive care facilities uh, are, are going to face a threat of having too many quite sick people in the coming weeks even the coming months uh, if we don't get that vaccination rate up as soon as possible uh, for mandatory vaccination I, I think we now have a situation where children 5 to 11 most likely have to be vaccinated if they want to go back to school full-time but actually, we know the impact of COVID in that age group is, is not nearly as, as, as serious as it is in older adults. So I would say, looking at children, maybe, you know, I, I, I certainly offer them the chance to be vaccinated if they want to and if the parents want them to. But I think we've got to focus on elderly. And if that means we, we should delay the, the, the vaccination program in children, then maybe we should delay it in children because elderly have to be the priority. Uh, yeah, actually, on that uh, issue, um, there's uh, an email here from uh, Anna. says, uh, taking a straw poll of parents of school-age kids, I'm hearing the same story. Many are planning for their kids to be in the 30% unvaccinated category. Just to explain, the government said that... Uh, Primary schools can resume uh, full-day classes as long as 70% of staff and pupils um, are vaccinated. But Anna says she's hearing that uh, many parents are planning for their, their kids to be in the 30% unvaccinated category. This seems the obvious caveat. Uh, isn't, 70, isn't the 70-30 plan just inviting reluctant parents to try to wriggle out of vaccinating their kids? Um, yeah. Uh, ben Cowling, is that... Um, well, yeah. in the age group of 12 to 16, I think there's a similar policy, and actually uptake in that group has been pretty high. Um, I, I think let's wait and see, but I, I'm not sure whether that policy is really really a priority right now and whether vaccinating children is, is really a big priority right now. I would actually urge the government to divert those resources to vaccinating elderly, to going to elderly homes and, and administering vaccines there, because really with, with the level of infections that are already in the community. It's only a matter of time until we start hearing about outbreaks in elderly homes, and that, that's going to be 
um, a, a real challenge then to, to deal with. And on the positive side, uh, to kind of promote, uh, get people to go uh, and, vac- and get vaccinated is, is, is allowing travel, is reducing the quarantine time, and, and, and etc. So uh, how are you standing on that? Do we maintain this 21 day? I mean, can we be, can we be more motivational with this, how we're treating this? I think 21 days has always been really too long. Um, I, I don't think it really made a lot of sense to have 21 days instead of 14. And now with Omicron, the incubation periods are even shorter. I think it may still be the case that there's very few Omicron detections after the third day of arrival. Um, so, so even a week might actually be enough in terms of Omicron. And at, at a time when we've got a lot of cases in the community here, um, if there's a case coming from overseas, it's not such a big deal as at the time when we are really trying to stay at zero, really, really trying hard. And so in that sense, relaxing the quarantine policies for, for travellers would make a lot of sense. But actually the vaccine coverage in the group of people that would be most likely to travel, the vaccine coverage is already quite high. So in that sense, we don't necessarily need incentives for that group. That would be more a consideration for, for opening up as they've done in Singapore, saying that, that there's a progression of... of of relaxation of public health measures and opening up travel is, is, is one of those uh, steps. Uh, okay, uh, another email here from Samuel says, um, I've heard a lot from different speakers persuading people to get vaccinated when a person who gets uh, vaccinated, even fully vaccinated, catches COVID. He or she still needs to be isolated. Don't you think it's the problem of the government policy towards COVID to strike a balance among all citizens? I suppose the target should be on the government policy rather than vaccination. Uh, zero COVID policy uh, never works in the modern world. Um, Actually, uh, uh, Ben Cowling, um, we've got all these strenuous efforts going on at the moment to cut transmission chains, uh, the lockdowns at Kwai Chung Estate, for instance. Given the transmissibility of uh, the Omicron variant, I mean, is it possible to keep it under control once it's out in the community? I think with Omicron, it's going to be very difficult. And what concerns me is actually the increasing number of unlinked cases every day in the last week, and also the detections in sewage surveillance. Uh, I think overnight there were reports there's positives in Chaiwan, in Ma On Shan, in Kwantong, as yes. well as in Kwai Chung. Mm-hmm. And that's indicative of unrecognized infections in the community. And of course, not every building is being tested. Not, not every building sewage samples are being tested. So if there's these positives in the ones that were tested, what else might be, we be missing? So I, and with Omicron, we know it spreads fast and it spreads explosively. So I, I, I really am concerned that, that uh, we're going to see a lot more cases in the coming weeks, a lot more cases than we currently have. And at that point, it gets very difficult to manage with the current policies where isolation is doing a good job, quarantine is doing a good job. But once the space runs out, we don't have a chance to do that anymore. And, and the, the, the transition go, you know, isn't slowed down by those measures as much anymore. So I, I, I am really concerned about, about the situation right now. But, I mean, it, I, I would say that you use the term, it does a good job. I would say it does a bad job in the sense that I hear voices of people that say, if they're going to catch it, they're not going to tell anybody. They're going to self-quarantine, they're going to hide, because they do not want to be in quarantine. They don't want to put their friends in quarantine. They're just going to hide, get it over with, 
get their immunity from naturally and that's it. So I think there is a, a sentiment building in, in the community that says, let me, let me have it and I'm not going to tell anybody. Well, I, yeah, I, I understand that. But at the same time, we recognize that isolating cases outside the home is a very effective way to stop transmission. Quarantine in close contact is a very effective way to stop transmission. That's what I meant by, by doing a good job. It is a very effective public health measure. But of course, when there's fatigue in the community and people are, are staying away from testing and, and maybe not, not uh, particularly if, they, if they've got symptoms or if they think they might have been exposed, then that's going to limit the, the, the potential for those measures to work. And, and that's a problem we have to face. And that, that's one of the concerns I've raised in the past about the sustainability of the zero COVID approach, that it's very difficult to keep it up. I think in the mainland, it may be the only, the only place in the world where they're really going to be able to sustain it. In Hong Kong, I, I'm not sure. Uh, okay, uh, Dale Fisher, uh, just quickly, you were saying that 99.7% of cases uh, in Singapore are, are, are mild or asymptomatic. Uh, it is pointed out that um, if you have a large number of people infected, uh, even a small percentage uh, can still be quite a large number. I mean, how is uh, Singapore coping? Yeah, um, just, yes, yeah, so Ben alluded to that earlier with 80% of seniors being vaccinated and this was the problem we found in August. We were maybe 85% of, of seniors were vaccinated and, and a, even a small percentage of un, unvaccinated people really does represent tens of thousands of and more in, uh, in Hong Kong, obviously, but... Uh, so it's still a lot of people, and they, they do stress the health system, and that impacts the whole community as well. So, so I, I think you do need to be, be very wary. It's actually only a few weeks ago where the number of people in ICU uh, were mostly vaccinated. Up until then, that sort of, uh, you know, 5 or 10% of people was, was, was accounting for more, you know, two-thirds at least of the, of the ICU intensive care admission. Mm. So... So it's, uh, the, you, you're quite right with a small percentage being a, a large number. Um, but, okay. but now we've got, uh, we've got 11 people okay. in ICU, but, uh, but about 5,000 cases that we know okay. of every day. So, Sorry, so got it to really take, has thanks a lot. Yeah, got to take a break for the news. Thank you uh, very much. It's 19 degrees, humidity 87%. To the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat with uh, Paul Zimmerman and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at the ongoing efforts to control the spread of the Omicron mm. COVID-19 variant. Uh, uh, before the break, we heard from uh, Benjamin Cowling, the head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and also Dale Fisher, who's a senior consultant in infectious diseases at the National University uh, hospital in Singapore and also chairman of the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network of the World Health Organization. Uh, two very knowledgeable uh, guests we had on before the break. Uh, it's a bit of a rush as we were coming up to nine o'clock. I didn't get a chance to thank them, but um, uh, anyway, uh, we're grateful for those two for appearing on Back Chat this morning. We have uh, two more guests uh, joining us now. Uh, we have uh, on the line uh, Lokin Hay, the chairman of the Democratic Party, uh, which has uh, conducted the uh, a survey among residents about uh, the uh, government's uh, approach to uh, containing 
COVID-19. And also with us is, uh, we'll speak to Lokin Hay in a moment, but, but first of all, uh, uh, Dr. Charles Ung, who's um, a medical doctor trained in Hong Kong, but also has a, a Master of Public Health from uh, Johns Hopkins University in the United States. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Ung, uh, good morning to you. Um, a, a lot of people are asking, um, there seem to be a, a number of cases uh, centred on uh, Kwai Chung Estate. No cases reported uh, on Hong Kong Island at the moment. Um, um, in fact, there's an email here from uh, a listener, Frank, says, if I could just read it out, says, uh, uh, with the widespread of Delta and Omicron, it's hard to believe there are no cases elsewhere in the territory. My point is that if we were to test, say, people in mid-levels, we will find cases. Uh, can the medics comment on this, please? And then she says uh, there is a negative labelling effect of uh, grassroots areas being dirty, while the compliance among these populations tends to be higher than among the seemingly untouchable rich and famous. Um, is it likely that, uh, that Omicron would have spread uh, around the territory? I mean, do you think there might be cases? Can we expect to find uh, cases and clusters on the uh, Hong Kong side? Um, I, I think there could be uh, uh, cases uh, found on the Hong Kong side if we uh, really go and go and test them. Um, so far, you know, the government has been trying its best to contain where the uh, where the virus has broken out very seriously, very seriously. That's mainly in the Kwai Chung area for now. Um, I'm not entirely uh, certain that there's a labelling effect uh, going on uh, so far since, you, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago we, we saw uh, other government officials uh, have been uh, tested, quarantined. The government so far has been treating everybody the same, and they're trying uh, their best to contain the virus as much as possible. And Dr. Eric Topol, a, a professor in the United States, very famous, uh, actually tweeted two weeks ago that U.S. has a much higher baseline of deaths per capita because there was a relative lack of containment during an, an earlier surge of the of the virus. So. Uh, you know, this links back to the zero COVID policy that we, we may discuss later, but uh, the government is really doing its best to contain the virus uh, as of today. Sure, they're working very hard on it, and we, we're all fully aware of it, but everybody's calling now for for a plan to show how we're going to go from zero COVID policy to living with COVID and open up to the rest of the world and meet up to what's happening in Europe and in other places in the world. So endemicity, as they call it, it's inev inevitable. How, are, how do you propose the government's going to move forward and at what speed? You know, there's a very interesting question when people ask about whether this policy is even sustainable. I mean, everybody knows it is, the short answer is no, it's not sustainable. China knows this, Hong Kong knows this, everybody knows this. But as you can see, the case in Europe, uh, in France, Austria and Belgium, they have been vacillating between locking down completely um, all the way to, uh, to try to ease up the restrictions. Haven't been going on too well. And why has that been the case? mainly because of the death rate of the virus. As you can see, when COVID just broke out, the death rate was 0.1%. That was 10 times that of influenza. And, and that sparked all, all, all the subsequent vaccines and lockdown policies. And now in 2022, two years since, the COVID, since COVID first broke out, the death rate has still been hovering at about 0.05%. 
say, for instance, all of 1.4 billion people in China were to be infected, they, this, this could result in 700,000 people dying of COVID. So if you, you look at the uh, European CDC guidelines, the scaling up of this quarantine restriction depends more on the lethality of the virus and the stress on the healthcare system uh, rather than, you know, whether this culture accepts um, this sort of death rate, another culture accepts what, what sort of travel restrictions. I mean, those are very flashy words, zero, zero COVID, um, living with the virus. But let's get back to the fundamentals. It's all about death rate, complications, hospitalizations, um, and, and, and containing the virus, basically. Well, yeah, containing, but I mean, we've got to move away to, to endemicity at some stage. We, otherwise, <laughs> how do we eat and drink and, 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 and get our business done? I mean, there's got to be a policy. We've got to have a plan. And we, we know the risk. We know the pain of this disease. And uh, so getting from zero to living with it is, 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 is a process that we have to be managing, managing carefully. My question to you is how? It, it, it is it is really tough. Um, it, it's a tough decision on the government and every and, and everyone else. Um, business people have been suffering. Employees have been suffering. Um, everybody is enduring this together. But you know, rather than a splintered society um, looking at how you know, having different views on how to defend against this virus, I, I can see Hong Kong and China being a much more united. Uh, uh, much more united and aligned in terms of uh, how we are fighting against this virus. And I, I mean, look, 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 look at Europe, Austria, Belgium, they're locking down again. So, you, you know, basically nobody in the world knows how to deal with this, with this virus and how to manage from the stage of zero COVID policy to, and, you know, living with COVID because of the different culture, because of the evolution of this virus. And Omicron is definitely going to evolve into another variant and hopefully less lethal, uh, a bit more like flu. And that's when the government can start thinking about uh, and consider uh, about uh, loosening up the restrictions and uh, letting business flow. OK, well, let's bring in uh, Lokin Hay, chairman of the Democratic Party. Good morning to you. Good morning. Now, your party's done an um, a interesting survey on public attitudes, uh, suggesting that um, a majority of people may now think that the government should uh, adopt a, a policy of living with the virus. Um, yeah. um, um, uh, just to confirm, so your survey was uh, conducted from January the 14th to the 23rd, yeah. uh, so that's very recent, and you got uh, uh, the opinions from uh, 603 people. And yes. okay, and and the number, sixty-five uh, percent, saying Hong, the government should study or prepare for living with the virus. That was a twenty-three percent point increase uh, compared with the uh, similar study conducted in November. Um, yes, is that, those figures are all correct. How, um, so, so, how do you account for that um, sort of a, a well, change in attitude from the? Yeah. I, I believe that Hong Kong people are. First of all, they are very tired of uh, fighting the virus because they've been into this fight for two years and they've been locking down a lot of things in, in, in our lives for two years already. And, and I believe also that uh, people are looking at the death rate, uh, the fatality, the hospitalization rate, uh, the, 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 the rate of uh, having a serious uh, illnesses uh, under Omicron as well uh, from 
all over the world, from all over the world, and from Hong Kong as well. Uh, and people see that Omicron is, they, they look like uh, it, it is less lethal. So I think that is also a kind of uh, a thing, a reason why uh, there is a change in the attitudes uh, among Hong Kong people uh, on living with COVID. And I, I, I actually uh, agree that uh, if we look at the Omicron or look at the COVID overall uh, in a medical uh, view, uh, it's all about hospitalization, uh, fatality. But uh, when we look about look at the social policy, uh, I think it is also uh, something that we have to look at. It's the cause of uh, containing it or the cause of sustaining a zero COVID uh, measure. Uh, nowadays, I think uh, when we look at those things and we balance our things, uh, Hong Kong people are asking the government to start uh, figuring out how are we going to deal with it uh, in the future. Because we all know that it, it, there's no there's no way to, to sustain a zero COVID for a long term. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because we should, as, as you say, um, the uh, the fatality rate. Uh, um, connected with COVID has remained very low for a long time. It's been at, at, at 213 for, for for quite some time now, and that is that. I mean, that that's minuscule compared with other parts of the world. I mean, Hong Kong really has done very well in um, c- c- containing the uh, the seriousness yep. of the outbreak, hasn't it? Yes, I, I believe so, and I and I also think that uh, when we talk about living with COVID, it is not it is it's not to the extreme. I mean, zero COVID is one of the extreme. Uh, having totally no other measures is another extreme. Uh, when we look at the European or the Americans, uh, they don't even wear a mask, uh, and, do, and they don't have any kind of restrictions, maybe. So I think that is uh, something uh, we're not trying to uh, convince the people to do. We believe that we, we still have to wear the mask. We still have some kind of uh, measures that uh, when people come to Hong Kong, they may have a few days of quarantine because nowadays uh, the experts said Omicron has an incubation period of three days. And and if you've got an incubation period of three days, then maybe five days or seven days of quarantine is enough. Uh, and, and I also think Hong Kong people are very pragmatic. Uh, at the very beginning, when the COVID-19 broke uh, out, uh, one of the very important uh, features of the virus is that it has a long incubation period of 14 to 21 days and people accepted that uh, so there is a longer uh, quarantine ter- time but when the virus is changing is 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 it getting some different variants uh, i think the government policy should change as well hmm. you don't you don't you don't just throw in those old things old measures into new variants that that's that's nonsense so, so can I ask you then, um, is the Democratic Party going to um, support mandatory vaccination and limitations to access to services and venues for those who are not vaccinated? I mean, if we, all the experts that have been on this program uh, make it very clear, we've got to get the vaccination rate up. The risk is at the elderly where we just do not have enough. Um, the rate is still too low and we've got to push it up as quick as we can. And so we need to take measures. Will the Democratic Party support mandatory vaccination and restriction of access to services and facilities? Uh, we believe that uh, there is uh, there's a choice for the people. Uh, if they can bal- if, if they look at their own situation and they, and they, and they really think they, they couldn't uh, bear the risk of 
think that that choice should leave to the people. Uh, but of course, there are some other restrictions. Uh, we, we have we have one question on on the restrictions uh, on the, uh, the vaccine passport all over the places uh, or in our survey as well. Um, I think more Hong Kong people can accept that. Uh, there are there are some restrictions if you're not vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, uh, I, I think that is something that uh, we can take reference as well. Yeah, because personal freedoms to not be vaccinated is going to create restrictions for everybody else. It means everybody's vaccinated, then we can all uh, live more freely. But we couldn't. I think I think it is it is still a choice because uh, injecting something into your body is is. is I think that there, there, there is a choice for the people. But of course, uh, if we have been waiting too long, uh, if we have been uh, waiting for the people to get vaccinated for too long, uh, we, we couldn't wait for everybody. Uh, and I think they should have a choice and we have to make them make their own choice. Uh, we tell them how or when are we going to do those things and how and when are we going to open up. Uh, and you're, you're more exposed to the virus if you're not vaccinated. Uh, uh, the dangers is higher than what you have thought before. Uh, I think that is uh, a, a well-informed choice is what we need. Oh, I see. So your suggestion is we open up and we increase the risk and we tell people clearly that they're in an increased risk when they're not vaccinated, so they better get vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, so the people can still make their own choice. All right. I think uh, that is important. Okay, uh, well, let's ask... Uh, hello, Dr. Charles Ung, are you still with us? Hi, yeah. Uh, w- would, would you like to uh, to add to that? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, um, Mr. Lowe is sound, sounding like some um, American Republicans who, who champion freedom. Yes, that's, yeah, that, that's some, some of the values, but that also sparked the QAnon conspiracies, uh, people talking about... Uh, vaccination, you know, being government and planting chips in, in people. You know, my take is we should definitely uh, vaccinate people mandatorily. Just speaking from a purely medical perspective, and this should be left for the medical experts and the public health experts to decide. Let me explain why. Because this is not about, uh, this is not something like cancer or heart disease, where having this disease or having a treatment is only about yourself. This is about the society. This is about opening up, as Mr. Lowe mentioned, as you, you guys have rightly mentioned. We want to open up. And the preconditions to that is herd immunity. WHO has stated the most effective uh, way of defending against the virus so far is vaccination. It's mass vaccination, large-scale vaccination, especially the elderly, especially children and those who are, those who are uh, uh, immune, not immune to the virus. So if we want to open up as soon as possible, if we want the businesses flowing, if, if we want cash running, we need as many people to be vaccinated, vaccinated as possible. So uh, allow me to, to say this. I, I'm afraid Mr. Lowe has con- contradicted himself when he wanted more uh, wanted this opening up to happen as soon as possible while giving people so-called a free choice um, to harm other people in society. Well, Mr. Lowe is a politician. He doesn't want to put a gun at people's head, so that's fair enough. <laughs> um, um, did you want to respond, uh, Lokin Hay? Well, I think, I think, I think uh, it's, it's, it's important for people to, to choose. I mean, even, even for influenza, we're not 
regulating, we're not restricting everybody to, to, to get vaccinated every year. And it actually caused a lot of fatality uh, for, 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 for the long period. Why are we not uh, vaccinating everybody uh, in influenza? Because it's a choice. So I think it is still a choice. Uh, it's just, it, is, it, is, it is important for people to know what uh, the consequences are. And if the people wanted to protect themselves, they will get vaccinated. And, and for that, I think the government should hold the responsibility as well, because they're not telling us anything. They have been telling us if you vaccinated enough, if you got 70%, we can open up a bit. No, they're not, they're not, they're not honoring their words. Mm. And Hong Kong people are asking, okay, we, we got vaccinated, so what, what's going on now? Show us We're the plan. people more. Show us the plan. Okay, exactly. This is a, a debate which will uh, continue. Um, mm. I hope we'll be able to speak to you both uh, again uh, very soon. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, that was uh, Lokin Hay, chairman of the Democratic Party, and we also heard there from uh, Dr. Charles Ung. Um, thanks very much uh, to uh, both our guests uh, for that part of the programme. For the final ten minutes, we're going to be turning our attention to um, a different issue, and that is uh, um, a, the, the prospect of another incinerator being built. Um, another this one. one uh, another one, yeah. This one near near Tun Mun, and that would be uh, in addition to the um, to the one that's currently under construction. The Seku Chow. Um, of uh, Seku Chow, yeah, to the south of uh, Lantau mm. Island. Um, we have uh, with us uh, on the line uh, Edwin Lau, who's founder and executive director of the Green Earth. Um, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Jim and Paul. Hi, good morning. So, so, so um, it seems that the um, Environmental Protection Department uh, is looking uh, very seriously. It's going to conduct an in-depth study uh, of this site at uh, Chung Choi uh, near Tun Mun. Um, uh, is this a, a proposal that you would support? Uh, not really, because if they are very serious about our waste crisis, and they should all know that the incinerator is an end-of-pipe solution. And while uh, uh, Mr. K.S. Wong, the Secretary for the Environment, always said we have to uh, avoid this reduction at source. So this is not an at source solution. So what we, the society, want uh, the uh, government to do is really try to change the current way how we uh, manage our waste because uh, we have lots of uh, single-use operation, no matter it is, say, the uh, disposable uh, tableware, cutlery, uh, uh, beverage containers, and, and then we should revive the reuse system and have the uh, municipal solid waste charging to come in place as soon as possible. And our recycling system, it is in the middle of the range of the uh, waste management, it is still not a really <coughs> reliable and, 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 and robust uh, system for the public to I mean, rely on. So there's a lot the government can do to avoid building Another one. Why the first one is right. not really right. up and yet? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I guess a lot of people would ask um, if we are going to have an incinerator, um, why wasn't this site decided on in the first place rather than uh, building an incinerator, which is currently under construction, um, to the, on the south side of Sekou Chow, which is a kind of pristine island uh, off the south of Lantau, where, where, where access will have to be by, by barge rather than by road. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, 
kind of uh, over 10 years ago, this was the uh, debate, that the sighting of the first uh, incinerator. And I, I, at that time, I did not agree that the uh, sighting should be at this second child should be near the uh, landfill at the uh, and, and near the uh, uh, CLP uh, power plant in in, in Twin Moon, mm. where the uh, res- residual ash from the incinerator can be quickly sent to the landfill for disposal, and the electricity generated from the incinerator can easily connect it to the uh, power plant. And whereas now it takes much longer time to do the reclamation and laying the underwater uh, cable to get all the, I mean, uh, needed infrastructure to be in place. So it, it's easy. Uh, this is a quite a long delay uh, where the government plan, the first plan that it should be up and running by uh, 2014. Uh, that is uh, in the uh, waste uh, framework plan done by Dr. Sarah Liao, the former uh, environment secretary. So if I take government argument here, um, uh, they say that even if we do full uh, waste separation at, at source, at, at homes, and we uh, make sure we have a material recovery facilities along the waste stream where we can take out more waste, uh, recover, uh, reuse uh, usable materials out of the waste stream, then we still have a lot of disposable waste that we can only get rid of either through incineration or landfill. And um, because the landfills are, being, are, are filling up, um, we cannot delay uh, the process of, of building an incinerator because it's going to take 10 years before the thing is operational. So, so we need to build now, start building now because otherwise we're going to be running out of space even if we do our utmost on waste separation. Now, um, there's still a lot of waste that shouldn't go to the insinuations uh, but to other facilities such as say the uh, organic waste or, or we call it mainly the food waste and we have over uh, 3,500 tons a day Then these are uh, useful organic material that can be through composting to generate biogas and not, I mean, uh, send it to the incinerator to burn. And because it's wet garbage, it burns, it requires much more energy to, to, to dry it and burn it. And, and this is really, I mean, the, the, the way of uh, thinking about our waste uh, or the, we call it, should be called resources. When we consider uh, the waste, it should be, if we well handle it or, or manage it, it can be uh, useful resources. What the government say that oh, uh, having uh, another or, or even the third incinerator is to help the city to uh, uh, become carbon neutral. And I think this is quite wrong to help the city to go for carbon neutral is by reducing our energy consumption and by introducing uh, clean renewable by turning waste and use the uh, uh, waste heat to generate electricity is just a byproduct that you, you won't want to waste it. And these are the resources we try to do much, much better than now in recovering the resources for uh, reuse, for recycling, and for composting. By doing all that, I think just one incinerator that is now building uh, should be enough uh, for a city if we are not keep on 
expanding our uh, single-use uh, uh, waste uh, disposal. Okay, uh, a couple of emails uh, on the subject. Uh, this one from Rebecca says, uh, why is the government discussing burning waste, which is going to result in increased carbon emissions rather than reducing them, a ban on packaging for fruits and vegetables in supermarkets and a ban on plastic and polystyrene takeaway containers would immediately reduce waste production by a huge amount. Plastic packaging for most fruit and veg is totally unnecessary and for those who are paranoid about hygiene they can always wash produce when they get it home and uh, Helga writes uh, uh, regarding the proposed incinerator capacity my concern isn't so much the emissions the Hong Kong government has invited reputable and capable waste management engineering and service companies uh, our landfills for example are uh, the best in class in terms of how they are built and operated as long as we meet European air quality standards I'm not too worried there but incinerator capacity creates laziness. As pointed out in the RTHK news this morning, recycling habits are slow to take off in Hong Kong. Mm. If we prematurely take off the pressure by giving uh, access to incinerator capacity, all actors in society, consumers, businesses and indeed uh, government may diminish their efforts to reduce and recycle waste. Um, um, uh, that's from Helga. There's a there's a bit more, but it's but it's quite long. But thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Helga. Yes. Yeah. So Helga, Rebecca, and Edwin are basically all three on the same lines, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, if we building an incinerator is the is the easy is the easy route. You just pay a bunch of engineers and build a big machine. Uh, the difficult bit is then avoid it, which is government working with the community to improve our recycling. Edwin, that's and really your strong. But, but we are still we, we, we are still generating uh, uh, huge amounts of waste in Hong Kong, though, and it has to be dealt with somehow, doesn't it? Uh, certainly, because uh, it is really our, uh, our environmental awareness and to raise it and to change our mindset that we don't always need to be use single-use disposable products that are now overwhelmed in our mm -hmm. society. That in the past, when I was young, it, it is never it was never like this before. But we live uh, happily and healthily. And, and don't always rely on single-use disposable items that we think they are more hygienic. It is the wrong concept. Okay, all right. Well, thanks very much for uh, joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, uh, Edwin Lau there, the founder and executive director of The Green Earth. Uh, thanks to our listeners and to mm. everybody who wrote in. Uh, thanks to you, Paul. I think this last one is worth a big discussion. Right, maybe. Yeah, maybe we'll do it as a, as a, a main topic soon. Yeah. Okay, and, and thanks to our, our producer, uh, Yuki Jung, and our technical support. A uh, quick look at the weather um, before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Uh, mainly cloudy. Uh, sunny intervals during the day with top temperature of around 22 degrees, moderate to fresh uh, easterly winds. The outlook, mainly cloudy tomorrow. Temperatures will fall on Saturday night. It'll be cold uh, in the morning, in the mornings early next week. And still cool with a few rain patches during the Lunar New Year holidays. Currently 19 degrees, humidity 87%. As the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19 increases with age, vaccines are highly recommended for the elderly. Common side effects are usually mild and temporary. Experts advise that those who have had flu shots before can safely receive COVID-19 vaccines. Even if you have a disease, you should get vaccinated as long as your condition is stable. Just staying home doesn't mean you're free from the risk of infection. 
Protect yourself. Get vaccinated early. The news summary with Andrew Shirovsky. A member of the Commission on Children says the government must investigate its own monitoring of care towards foster children following a report into alleged abuse at a children's home in Prince Edward. Priscilla Lloyd described the initial findings of the report as sad and shocking, saying they reflected a culture of normalizing ill treatment of children. An environmentalist says Hong Kong cannot continue to rely on its three landfill sites to handle waste. William Yu, the CEO of World Green Organization, was commenting after the government said it would study building a waste incinerator in Changsui in Tunmun. And the government says it found no new COVID-19 cases from an overnight lockdown and testing operation at a block in Tungchung. Block 7 of Coastal Skyline Phase 3 was cordoned off last night. That's the news headlines. I'll have more at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. The side of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good day, good morning and welcome to Thursday here on The Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. Well, today after 11, as promised a few weeks ago, multi-award-winning floral designer, of course, Dr. Solomon Long will be back with the all-important Lunar New Year Top Pro Flower Advice. Wow, you know all about this. Flowers play a huge part in the festivities. And if you want some advice from the very best, today is your day. He's going to be on Facebook Live with me at about 10 minutes past 11. A little later than usual, because Solomon's busy, our morning brew vet will be here with us. 12.10, Dr. David Gething is going to be answering any of your pet questions and to talk about care for animals over the Lunar New Year. It's nearly firecracker time. Legal or illegal... Our pets don't like them. So today we're going to discuss anxiety, among other things. Of course, anything you want to ask, Dave, morningbrew at rthk.hk. Andy Bell to get us going this morning, 25 minutes to 10 o'clock.